Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. Thanks for being here on this, uh, the joke's already been worn out, but this wonderful, beautiful summer day. Uh, My name's Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We are a new community of faith, as Trey said, that believes no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. If you are joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of a series called A Subversive Church, A Subversive Church. And what we've been doing is looking at Paul's uh, first letter to the Corinthians and sort of examining this idea that um, how the Corinthians are acting, how the Corinthians are believing perhaps looks a little bit more like Corinth, a little bit more like their surrounding culture, and a little less like Jesus. And so Paul's going through some practical examples, uh, who they boast in, their leaders, uh, examples about sex, examples about finances, uh, about spiritual gifts, and he's really trying to sort of pull back the veil a bit and be like, hey, uh, when you do these things, you actually look more like your, your context and a little less like Jesus. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit right? God's mojo. You can't define it, but when you're in the presence of it, it does something to you. It affects you. Um, And and we've been looking at sort of these gifts of the Spirit. So essentially, God has uh, manifested His presence amongst the Corinthian people, and that has resulted in various gifts among the people. So some, some of the Corinthians realize that they have knowledge about the community. Some of the Corinthians realize um, that they have an ability to, to heal people, um, of diseases. Some of the Corinthians realize that they're speaking in, in languages they don't understand, and they're all asking, what's going on? What is this? And Paul's attempting to sort of, you know, corral this, bring this in, help them to understand. And it starts, says Paul, with the deep confession of the heart that Jesus is in charge. We talked about that for the last two weeks, that we can't even begin to understand who God's Spirit is unless it wells out, wells up out of the deepest recesses of our being that I am not in charge. I am not in control. I'm not in control of my, my work. I'm not in control of my life. I'm not in control of my relationships. Jesus is in control. And out of that, we can begin to understand who this Jesus is. And then Paul, what he does in a really, really beautiful, and I think um, we don't give enough credit because it was the first time it happened. But what he does is he sort of likens the community to a body, right? So he says, look, you're all given different gifts, but the eye can't wish it was an ear, right? If the eye was an ear, then how would you see? So he's effectively saying you shouldn't be jealous of that person over there because if you were them, you wouldn't be you, right? And that feels really nice and special. You wouldn't be you, But it's bigger than that, right? He's not only saying you wouldn't be you, but the body would be less than. The body wouldn't be a complete body. So by you not being your full self, by you not bringing the fullness of your gifts and your stories to the community, the body is hurt. And then he goes on to say, uh, because it's the Corinthians, and what do we know about them? They've been boasting and bragging. That's pretty much what they do um, in a upwardly mobile society. They're all about trying to figure out who ranks higher than whom right? Oh, I have this gift. I'm better than you. Oh, I have that gift or you have that gift. Oh, yikes. They're trying to figure out who's the best, who's most loved in God's eyes. And then Paul goes on to say, well, the parts of the body that actually seem most public 
are not the most important. You can live without a limb, right? You can't live without a stomach. Or maybe you can, I don't know exactly, I'm not a doctor. You can live without a limb, but you see the limb. The limb seems very important, right? The limb gets a lot of glory for what this does. The stomach gets no glory. Well, what would you rather have, Paul asked? A missing limb or terrible digestion? It's the body that gets the glory, the body that does the work. Every part is needed. You Corinthians are thinking that you're more important, but you're actually not. That's not the kingdom. And then in the middle of this wonderful work that Paul is doing to, to change mindsets, he, he pauses. He pauses. He steps back. Most scholars think that he steps back from this letter and stops because where he moves in the next section of the letter is so beautiful and so poetic. It, it, it's sort of, it's hard pressed to think that he was just continuing in his consciousness. Most scholars are like, you had to take a step back and really think through what you're about to say next. And it's perhaps a, a passage you've heard before. 1 Corinthians 13. Well, actually, we're gonna end with 12 verse 31. He goes, eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see what a poor reflection, as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You've probably heard this passage before, right? Weddings. Even if you're here today and you're like, I'm not a follower of Jesus, this is a passage that sounds familiar because we've used it in weddings um, for a very long time. And hopefully, as you know, based on that, that preface that I gave, 
That's an unfortunate thing that we've used it in weddings. It's an unfortunate thing. It's almost like going to a zoo and seeing animals, seeing lions and tigers, right? You get a, you get a picture of what a lion is like, but the lion's been domesticated. The lion's been emptied of its power. To see a lion out in the wild in its natural context, man, is a far more wonderful and terrifying prospect. I love the way Oscar Wilde puts it. He goes, love is not fashionable anymore. The poets have killed it. They wrote so much about it that nobody believed them. And I am not surprised. True love suffers and is silent. We might say love is not understood anymore. Weddings have killed it. We recited it so much in the wrong context, we've emptied it of, its, of all its power. And again, it, it's important that we recognize that when we see the word love here in the Greek language, there are a couple different words, branches of the tree love. And, and the word that Paul is using throughout is agape, not eros. And maybe you've heard of that distinction before. Eros is where we get the word erotic. So it's romantic love. It's love that we feel. But what Paul is describing when he says the type of love that we see embodied in, in God, in the God of Israel, the type of love that's, that's going to be the final love of the world is agape love. And the best way I can translate this, when you distill it down, agape is sacrificial commitment. Agape love is the love that is willing to sacrifice all that you are in a committed way to the person or the group before you. That doesn't mean you give them what they want. That's not agape love. But it does mean that you are putting whatever allows them to flourish before yourself. Which is why this is a text that should not be read at weddings. This is a text that should be read on the day when that couple wants to get a divorce. At that point, on that day, they should come to the altar of their bedside, open up this text and say, love is patient. Love is kind, does not boast, it is not arrogant. Then we're getting closer to the power of this text. I was talking with Nathan earlier this week and I was really struggling with what to say because it, it's already a sermon in and of itself. I kind of just wanted to show up and read it to you and be like, all right, go, you got it. How can I add to this? How can I even begin to riff on this? But then as I prayed about it more, God was like, all right, here's some things that can be said that might help push the ball further. So I wanna talk about maybe three aspects of this agape love today, three aspects. First, sorry to go against the Beatles here, but love is not all you need. <laughs> love is not all you need. It's, it's fashionable in our day and age to say that doctrine doesn't matter, theology doesn't matter, how we live our lives doesn't matter, right? We hear the mantra of, don't judge, just love. And I know where that comes from. It comes from, from groups or from churches that feel like they knew too much instead of Paul's language of we only know in part. That's where it comes from. But that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, uh, you know, don't judge, just love. If, that, if love was all you needed, Paul would have said that. But here's what he said. He, he doesn't say that tongue speech doesn't matter. He says, if I speak in the language of heaven, but I'm not doing that from love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He doesn't say prophetic speech doesn't matter. He says, if it's not motivated from love, it amounts to nothing. The interesting thing about that, at least that, that, um, 
that language of noisy gong. In the Greek construction, it has this idea of an endlessly reverberating noise, endlessly reverberating noise. Now, I'm not a musician or a sound engineer. I know some of you may be. Um, but that word noise carries a technical meaning, which I found fascinating. Noise generates sound or current that transmits, or sorry, that accompanies a transmitted signal, but is not part of it. So in effect, what noise is doing is obscuring and drowning out the true music. It amplifies sound, but it produces no distinguishable note of music. Paul is not saying love is all you need. Therefore, stop speaking in tongues, stop calling each other to account. He's not saying uh, with this whole language of don't judge, just love, as if we can't understand that some things are right or some things are true or some things are good. But he is saying that if you're stepping into someone's life so as to, to walk beside them, which means you're gonna challenge some things about their life and they're gonna challenge some things about you. If you're stepping into that place and you're not doing it from a place of overwhelming love for them, of sacrificial commitment, then ultimately it's not a good idea. That's what he's saying. Love is not a higher and better gift. It is a way, a manner of life, a vision within which all the gifts find their proper place. We might say, it's a way to play really good music. It's a way to play music, the music of the gospel, such that noise doesn't get in the way of allowing us to really hear and respond. You know where I see it a lot right now in our own context? Is in conversations surrounding um, justice and reconciliation. It feels like nationally, uh, parts and major pockets of the country are waking up to how the structures of our country, and by extension, our churches, are built around the powerful, functionally withholding uh, resources and voice from the less powerful, and realizing that churches have been complicit in these systems. And that's a really good thing that we're waking up to this, that we're being called to account, we're being called to imagine a better way, that perhaps at the center of our worship has not been the crucified Jew, Jesus, but has been someone who looks a little more powerful. But I don't know, as I've been part of these conversations and entering in, I realize that the rhetoric is really loud right now. It's very loud, and in places, it has strayed to a place where the music of the gospel is not heard because the words do not emerge from love, but from bitterness. Now, neither I nor Paul am saying that we shouldn't speak or challenge or protest. Of course we should. If that's what Paul was saying, he would have said that. But he said prophetic speech is good. But he is saying that if our challenge doesn't come from love for those who have been overlooked and those who have done the overlooking, then we don't understand it. I remember I was at a conference two years ago. Um, and I don't think it was planned out this way, but two speakers back to back were pretty much talking about the same idea. We're pretty much uh, attempting to pull back the curtain and, and reveal to the church uh, in this country how in certain places and certain times, um, we actually aren't worshiping the crucified Jew, but worshiping one who might look a little more powerful, reveal how we might be complicit in some of these unjust systems. Two speakers, the first one, 
there was an awkwardness and an uncomfortability throughout the entire room because it was clear from the start that he did not love that room. He was bitter, and perhaps justifiably so. He was bitter, and consequently, we could not hear the music of the gospel. The second one came up, said the exact same message, exact same conclusion, called the church to repentance, called the church to open up our hands, to see to, to with steps that we can take, and the room was in tears. People were on their knees. People were asking God. Nothing changed in the two messages except the second one. It was clear that that prophetic speech was coming from a place of love for that room. I love the way Marilyn Robinson puts it in her book, Gilead. How do you tell a true prophet from a false one? The true prophets love the people they chastise. Can we say that? True prophets love the people that we challenge. The people that we're saying, there's a better way. There's a better way. So whether it's speaking truth, discussing theology, life decisions, how to act, how to speak, we must be asking ourselves, why am I doing this? Why am I saying these things? And if I cannot honestly say that I am doing this for love and in love, then I must question the entire enterprise, says Richard Hayes. For love and in love. So the first thing, love is not all you need. Love is not all you need. Secondly, love is not a feeling. It is action. And I kind of already touched on this earlier. The word Paul uses is not eros. Eros is feeling. Eros is being romantic, feeling romantic, feeling affection and attraction. Agape is not that. Maybe there will be some feelings part of it, but that's not agape. Agape is sacrificial commitment to another's flourishing. You can't see it in the English so much, but in the Greek, when Paul goes through that beautiful litany of what love is and what love is not, they're all verbs. <laughs> they're all verbs. There's not a single adjective in there. When he says love is patient, love is kind, in fact, uh, the, the, the word hey agape is in a noun form and the word for patience is a verb. So it would be better translated, love practices patience. Love practices kindness. Every single one of them are verbs. Love is not what you feel, love is what you do, which means you might not be feeling particularly patient when you're practicing patience. Can I get an amen for that? Yeah. You might not be feeling kind when you stomach whatever you're stomaching and practice kindness. It feels like those first two seem so uh, different from the culture we live in. Our society feels categorically impatient and unkind. It's almost like we've created a society where, where my instant gratification is the expe expectation, the norm. And notice in that instant gratification, it's instant. There's no patience involved. And I am gratified. So we're all like vacuums, sort of sucking up, sucking up. But the first two action steps that Paul gives us of love, the type of love we see in God, is that love is not instant, but it's patient through time. And love is kind. That line that we sing has been wrecking me. You have been so, so kind to me. I even say that, I feel my stomach flutter. You have been so, so kind to me. 
I challenge you. I think that word has, has lost a lot of its power um, because maybe we've turned it into an adjective and we've turned it into this sweet, sentimental thing like, oh, you're so kind. But it's a much more forceful word. There's power behind it. You have been kind to me. You have bestowed upon me kindness and grace, probably when I didn't deserve it. Love is patient and love is kind. And then Paul moves down in this litany and he says what love is not. And the interesting thing about this, and this is why this passage must be read, must be read, or at least it helps to be read in the context of the entire letter, is everything that love is not is a referent to something earlier in the letter where Paul is getting on the Corinthians. So when he says, love does not envy, were you immediately recalled to chapter three, verse three, where Paul says, for as long as there is envy among you, are you not of the flesh? The Corinthians were envious. When he says, love does not boast, we immediately are recalled to uh, 1 Corinthians 1.29, where it says, God shames uh, the powerful so that no one can boast before him. When he says, it is not puffed up, we remember that one, Fusio, where in chapter eight, he says, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. It is not improper. Love doesn't seek its own interest, nor is it easily irritated by others does not celebrate decisions that are contrary to what God has for a person, but it rejoices in truth, bears all things, trusts all things, hopes at all times, endures till the end. See, the Corinthians are reading this and realizing that everything Paul is saying that love is not is pointed right at them. <laughs> They're reading this and be like, oh goodness, we are the antithesis of love. In every way, we have been getting it wrong. We have not been acting from love because love is habit and action. And then when you sort of step back even further and you think through the, the, the duration of the letter, Paul has constantly been sort of working to show Corinth that, hey, this is where you don't look like Jesus, right? This is where uh, the, the wisdom of the cross, or we might say the foolishness of the cross, is not pervading your minds and hearts. And then in this chapter, he's saying the antithesis of, of love is everything that you're doing. And then it dawns that when you read this description, when you read this description of what love does, Paul is personifying the life of Jesus. What, who knows love like the patience of Jesus? who dwells with us, who lives for 30 years before even beginning ministry, and then who doesn't fix us right away, but enters into relationship. What kind of patience is that? Who knows better the kindness than Jesus? Who touched lepers and ate meals with the, socially, the social outcasts and the pariahs? Who spoke with all people, wherever they were on the, on the status hierarchy, spoke with everyone, and the message was the same. You were invited to leave your life of selfishness, whatever that looks like, and come to the table with me. Who knows that type of kindness? When you read Jesus' story, you, you never see even the, the faintest glint of, of envy or of arrogance or improperness. And even when you do see impropriety, usually it's, it's cultural or social impropriety. He's eating with people that he shouldn't be, 
right? That's the improper element. But even as we consider that, we're like, I'm kind of taking Jesus' side on this one. It still feels right. Jesus never insists on his own way, but the way of the Father. He never seems irritable or resentful of others. Never rejoices in wrongdoing. But he challenges people to invite further in into life with him. Celebrates truth. Patient in all things. Jesus who bears all things unto death. Trust in every circumstance. <laughs> Hopes at every moment. Who endures until the end. Jesus who never fails. See, the reason why this text is read at weddings, even at the weddings of those who do not follow Jesus, is because we read this text, we hear this description of love, and somewhere deep inside of us, our hearts want to believe this is true. Even if we have, want nothing to do with Jesus, right, or following him, we read this description of love and our hearts nod and say, yes, that's it. That has to be it. This agape love, this has to be the secret to the world. This has to be the, the key that unlocks freedom for all humankind. It has to be. And Paul would say it is. And if you want to see the God who is agape love perfectly embodied, if you want to see the face of this God, look at Jesus. Which is why uh, even my friends who, who aren't followers of Jesus, um, usually it doesn't have to do with his story. <laughs> When you read his story, you're like, I want this to be true. I want this to be true because this guy seems so unlike everything else. This is agape love. You want to know what it means to say God is love? Look at Jesus. Love is not a feeling. It is an action. And then lastly, um, if we said love is not all you need, love is not a feeling, but an action. When in doubt... Choose love. When in doubt, choose love. But where there are prophecies, says Paul, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. You understand now why at weddings they sort of cut it off at the part that says love never fails. They don't go to the rest of this. Why? It's pretty bleak. It's a pretty bleak picture. Where there are prophecies, it will cease. Where there are tongues, they're going to be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. You almost hear it again in the context of a wedding saying, where today you are sure of one another, tomorrow you won't be. Where today you would die for each other, Tomorrow you want to kill each other. Where today your heart is full of certainty, tomorrow your heart will be full of questions. That's the end of this chapter. We know in part, but then we will know fully, as we are already fully known. And again, if we're going back to this idea of like, don't judge, just love, 
Uh, usually that comes from this thought that we can't know anything. The further we walk in this story of relationship, whether it's marriage or friendship or whether it's with Jesus, the further we walk, the more we realize that I have far more questions than I have answers. But it's important that we realize this. I love that, that the core of this story is mystery. But Richard Rohr puts it so well. He goes, mystery is not unknowable, it's infinitely knowable. And that's the difference. Mystery, as you walk with Jesus and you realize, man, you're far more mysterious than I thought. It's not that what we knew before isn't true and we just throw up our hands and say, well, we were just all wrong. No, that's not it. It's just that the further you enter in, the more it opens up exponentially and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't get to the end of this God. That's the point. It's not that mystery is unknowable, but it's infinitely knowable. So, so Paul is saying, discuss theology. Just don't get hung up on it. Pray to understand how you should live. But don't treat one another as if you have full access to that truth. Utilize the gifts you've been given. Speak to the experiences that you have. Speak honestly. Speak boldly. But just know that you don't understand it all fully. Allow that to maybe humble you a bit. You will be in situations, you will be in discussions, you will be around people where you will not know what the right answer is, the right path, the right step. You'll know partly. Enter into that partly, but recognize it there. And when in doubt, choose love. This is not blind tolerance. This is not just you know, throwing your hands up and tolerating everything. No, 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 no. This is sacrificial commitment to the person before you that they would know God. Which is why this is a passage, as I said before, not on the day of your wedding, but on the day when you're ready to call it quits. This is a passage spoken by an old man who has been alive a long time, who has been fooled by God, broken by God, rejoiced in God, been killed by God, and has not given up on God as God has not given up on him, which means he truly loves God. <laughs> he would probably say, I understand less about Jesus today than I did yesterday, but I love him more. And that's, that's the, the mystery when we realize it's not unknowable, it's infinitely knowable. It's infinitely knowable. See friends, what, what's going on in this passage about love is the recognition that the world is not black and white as we wish it was. It's not clean. And, and that will destroy our youthful idealism. That will destroy it. But that's good. It needs to die. And when your idealism dies, you know what will be born out of that? Cynicism. <laughs> A form of it. And that's okay. You'll feel duped. You'll feel betrayed. You won't understand what's going on. But don't give up. Stay in it, friends because then cynicism will die. And what will be reborn out of cynicism is love. The love that Paul describes here. I wanna finish with a, a passage from a book um, that I've been reading. It's, it's called, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. <laughs> it's, uh, it was written by one of my professors in seminary. Um, she is an amazing woman. She taught American Christianity. Um, she, uh, young, mid-30s, uh, has a high school sweetheart. They got married named Tobin. 
um, struggled to conceive for a while. They finally were able to get pregnant with Zach, their son. Um, was about, you know, receiving tenure, really doing some great things. And then out of the blue, she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Um, if you're, her, her name's Kate Bowler. She has a phenomenal essay about life and death in and, um, and the New York Times. But this is her memoirs, some of her journals. It's been now like two, two or three years. Um, she's not cured, um, but it, she's stable. And so it's her memoirs of who God is, what's going on. And I want to read this passage toward the end um, where she's good friends with a doctor who's a pediatric oncologist and, um, named Frank. And you can see in their conversations that, that Frank understands love. Frank, in a sense, what I'm trying to suggest is, is a, a Paul, sort of. Someone who has seen kids get healed and someone who has buried children but has continued to show up at his job, continued to love people before him. And uh, they're, they're talking. And I want you, as I read this passage, to, to allow the parallels, maybe even hear some of the parallels of hope and faith and love that Paul's talking about here in this as well. She says, I am sitting across from the man who won a huge prize for his discovery of my particular form of cancer, the cell disorder that caused these tumors to bloom. For all his many efforts, his thousands of hours in the lab, I have brought him cupcakes with sprinkles. We have both, as it turns out, spent a lot of time walking up to the edges of things, and we are talking about what it means to face facts. I'm not sure I want to know what happens if I stop chemotherapy, but at the same time, I want to get it over with, I confess. What would you do? I'd go to work, he says, and I realize the weight of what he is saying. His office is plain and sensible, which confirms something I already know about him five minutes into our conversation. He has suffered and is there to work. And what were the worst moments of his life, he put one foot in front of the other. He tasked himself with a series of responsibilities that ultimately gave me back this year, and maybe many more. But what I loved more than anything was that he did it without knowing it would matter. He marched forward because it was the best he could do. We're all terminal, he says simply, and it answers my unspoken question. How do you stop? You just stop. You come to the end of yourself, and then you take a deep breath and say a prayer and get back to work. I have had cancer for a full year now. I called my mom before the surgery one year ago today. Frank told me the secret, I said to her, but the more my mom pressed for details, the more it was obvious that I was on a lot of exciting painkillers and that I had forgotten the secret entirely. I had asked him about heaven. He knew what I was asking because he always knows. Will I be connected? Will I miss everything? Will I see my son sprout up and learn the rules of Canadian football? Can I see him graduate and be launched into the world? How many times can I sit beside his bed and watch his eyes squeeze tight as we thank God for tractors and the sticks we throw into the stream near our house? These are the plans I have made and these are the hopes that are being ground into dust. And then one day out of the blue, I remembered what he said next. Don't skip to the end, 
he said gently. Don't skip to the end. What do you think I meant by that, Frank said to me last week, sitting in my office? He can't remember saying it because that day was such a blur. We are marveling at a whole year gone by. A whole year the doctor said I had a 30% chance of surviving. I think you meant that we just can't know and that our brains fill in all the details for good or for ill. We want to tell ourselves a story, any story, so we can get back to certainty, I reply. You know me, I am so desperate to know what's going to happen, at least so I can prepare. I sound really deep, he says. I just need to make it to 50. I need to make sure that kid is launched. I need to get most of my life done. I need to lock it down but it comes undone. There are so many times in life when we think we have it locked down, he says. We are quiet again. Plans are made. Plans come apart. New delights or tragedies pop up in their place and nothing human or divine will map out this life. This life that has been more painful than I could have imagined. More beautiful than I could have imagined. Right. That's the secret. Don't skip to the end. I remind myself, sheepishly wiping my face on the sleeve of my sweater. And as I read that, I just hear Paul writing so wearied. And these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Don't skip to the end. The greatest of these is love. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray for each person in this room. I don't know if they're, uh, if they're in youthful idealism or if they're in cynicism or if they're in that, that place where we can call love. But I pray for each person that the words of that song we sang would just pierce them and enter into the depths of their being. That you have been so, so kind to them. That there's no shadow that you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up coming after them. That you won't give them all the answers. It's impossible. But you will give them yourself. You will give them love, true agape love, and that is enough, and that is the secret. And with that love, we can take one step after another, knowing that with you, even though it doesn't make us feel perfect, but it's, it's enough, that we can see that love in the faces of our families and of our church, we can see who you are there, that we read your story, Jesus, we recognize that you are so patient and so kind. And though you won't give us everything we want, you will give us yourself, and that is enough. When you say, you are the way, the life, and the truth, no one comes to the Father but through me. And we recognize that love is a way, and in a sense, the way of love is the way of Jesus. And wherever we are on that, Father, my prayer is that you would open our hands, that we would courageously open our hands to whatever question that goes unanswered and say, I don't need it anymore. 
I want it so desperately. Please don't drop me, but I don't need it because I have you. I have love. Would that fill us? Would the church be a place full of this agape love? Would Hope Brooklyn be that place, Lord? Would, would as we work our jobs and relate with one another, would people just see something different about us? A humility, a kindness, a patience, a lack of envy, a lack of being puffed up. That, that hopes all things and believes all things and endures all things and that never fails. Would there be a steadiness about who we are? If there are people in here, Lord, who don't know you, they're not gonna know you the way they want, but they can love you and be loved by you. Would they say that is enough and offer their hearts to you? For those of us who have been walking with you, we can't know everything we want, but we can say that you are love and you love us and we love you. And therefore we will continue to worship and to pray boldly and to put one foot in front of the other and not to skip to the end. This is your church. This is your story. This is your world. And we get to be part of it. And that is more painful than we could have ever imagined and more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. Let that be at the heart of things. And when we are in doubt, when we have no idea what you think or what you want or what's right or what's wrong, would we recognize that faith, hope, and love remain. But the greatest of these is love. Make that a part of who we are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.